Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, industry asks for some cyber signs from the Pentagon. I think the first step is increasing that transparency, talking to industry, talking to the broader policy ecosystem about what exactly is going on with the program. What's next for the back to the office movement in the federal government? Agencies thought they had a general idea of what they wanted to do, and then Delta kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the latest weapon in great power competition is cash. We've wanted a tool to be able to encourage not only those companies and entrepreneurs, but private investors to say the water's fine, come on in. It's Friday, September 17th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department's review of its cybersecurity maturity model certification will be complete by the end of the year. A Pentagon spokesman tells FedScoop when the review's finished, the department will, quote, communicate any anticipated changes to the CMMC program to industry and other stakeholders. More on CMMC in a moment on the Daily Scoop podcast. John Sherman is the Biden administration's choice to be the next permanent chief information officer at the Pentagon. He's been acting CIO since January. He's former CIO of the intelligence community and former deputy director of the Open Source Enterprise Office at the Central Intelligence Agency. The Navy and Air Force have a new deal for supercomputing. Jackson Barnett's tech reporter at FedScoop. Jackson, welcome. Your story says the contract is through DOD's high-performance computing modernization program. What is this deal for, and why does it matter? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. Um, Essentially, this deal will allow parts of the military to access extremely advanced technology that can run, you know, quadrillions of operations a second. These computers are so advanced that they can run through calculations that no other computer has the power to do. Um, And by having the deal through this organization, uh, essentially they kind of uh, allow other parts of the military to access the technology instead of storing it, say, in just the Navy or just the Air Force. Uh, Really, everyone will have the opportunity to, to now use this technology. You write in your story, the computer offers the military a combined peak performance of over 17.6 petaflops. That compares, you write, to a computer at Oak Ridge National Lab that operates at 148.6 petaflops per second. So this is not the fastest supercomputing anywhere in the federal government, but it's right up there, it sounds like. It's definitely not up there, uh, you know, with, with Oak Ridge. But really, when you get to that range of, of petaflops, you know, we're talking about computers that can, can do things no other computers can you know, it's, it's it, as an analogy, it's almost like, you know, we're talking about Olympic sprinters versus some first graders running around on the track. You know, they can just do things that other ones, others can't. Do we have a sense of where this will take supercomputing at the Pentagon? Is there a trend line that we can tie to this, Jackson? Well, many parts of the government are very interested in supercomputing. Um, the DOD has had this office for a number of years, and they've been very interested in supercomputing, um, especially when it comes to things, you know, like modeling and and simulation, that has been an area that supercomputing has really allowed the DOD and other parts of the government to advance in. Um, What they use for this deal and what these computers specifically will be used for is to be determined. Um, But I assume that uh, in the future, they will have um, many new capabilities that use these computers and use their advanced technologies. Jackson Barnett, tech reporter at FedScoop, thanks very much for joining me in the Daily Scoop podcast. 
Thanks, Francis. You can read more on Jackson's story and all of the stories in today's headlines at fedscoop.com. Cyber Week is coming next week, presented by CyberScoop. It's next Monday through Friday. It's a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events, lots of top leaders from technology, education, and government. It's happening both digitally and in person. You can learn more and register now at cyberweek.us. Three industry groups have a six-step plan to help companies prep for changes that could be coming to the CMMC model. Those steps include support for small businesses and implementing the model in contracts. Corbin Evans is Principal Director of Strategic Programs at the National Defense Industrial Association. Corbin, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Great to see you again. What was the impetus behind you and your colleagues at the other organizations to send this letter to the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks? Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, and it's great to see you here. Um, one of the main impetuses for us sending this letter was the fact that we have not received any additional guidance or an update in communications as to where the department is uh, on the CMMC program. Obviously, this program received a ton of attention throughout uh, the last few years, and our members are eager to hear about potential updates and really essentially want to know what changes may be forthcoming to the program and how that may impact them and their business. All right. I mentioned the six-step plan, and I want to ask you about a couple of these. One in particular that I know is important to your members is regularly engaging with industry. What's your sense of the industry engagement that the CMMC board has undertaken so far, and how would you like to see that grow or improve, Corbin? So uh, it's a bit of a, a tale of two cities. Uh, at the beginning of the program, we really saw a lot of engagement. Uh, we really had the opportunity to get in and share with the departments um, and the newly um, stood up CMMC accreditation body, the views of industry um, and really our members and the members of other associations that are represented on this call. That was something that was essential to ensuring that this policy was one that was um, effective uh, and comprehensive in the actual security that it achieved, and really uh, something that was implementable, um, which I think is uh, really above all else uh, an important part of the policy. Since uh, uh, you know, since that original um, engagement, uh, we really have not seen uh, much engagement throughout the uh, the 2021 year here, and that's something we really like to change. We know that there are internal reviews and conversations about changes to this program ongoing within the department but we have yet to see an opportunity for industry to really provide uh, substantive feedback and react uh, to uh, some of those potential changes. And that's something that's really uh, paramount uh, for us and the other groups represented here. Do you have a sense of what that feedback would be from your members, what they would say about the program if they had a chance to voice it directly to the CMMC board itself? So some of those um, complaints or uh, constructive criticisms are included here in this letter, um, but we really are waiting to see what potential changes um, are coming to the CMMC program. Um, it was originally envisioned in one way. Uh, we've been told that they've been doing internal reviews, uh, potentially making tweaks of the program, but we don't know exactly what those tweaks are. And the ability to react, to provide feedback, to really provide insights and information about how those tweaks may impact industry and our ability to ensure compliance and implement this policy successfully. It's really essential to ensuring that we can keep to the timeline that the DOD has set for us and really help uh, industry achieve this higher level of cybersecurity. All right. Another one of these six I want to ask you about is providing additional implementation guidance and support for small businesses. What's different about implementation in your view of CMMC for a small business as opposed to, uh, to say, a big prime? 
Well, small businesses are really at the heart of the National Defense Industrial Association's membership um, and something that we really uh, we really fight really strongly for because of the fact that a lot of these businesses are um, you know doing this uh, don't have the resources to um, you know go out and purchase these expensive off-the-shelf solutions or um, attract the the highest level and most competent um, consultants or talent they're starting from a lower baseline typically um, and that's not universal but something that we have really seen across our membership is they are starting from a, a place that is not at the higher level that a lot of the prime uh, more traditional contractors are starting from. So they have further to go. And that means they are going to incur um, higher costs. That means that they're gonna need more time uh, and they're gonna need more information about uh, how uh, to implement some of these complex cybersecurity requirements. And all three of those pieces are essential to ensuring success because these small businesses are really essential to um, the defense industrial base and providing the capabilities um, that are necessary to ensure that those prime contractors can deliver on contract. You write in this letter, you and your colleagues, for many small businesses, recouping CMMC costs will depend on the successful contract award. This uncertainty creates a disincentive for small businesses to participate in firm fixed price contracts. What solves that from the CMMC's perspective while still giving them what they need, what the department needs, uh, regarding the security of each of the companies that it chooses to work with. Sure, there really needs to be a vehicle for uh, small businesses to pass along compliance costs related to CMMC. We know that they can be uh, potentially um, dramatic uh, compliance costs, especially as you rise in the security levels within the CMMC program. And currently there just aren't the resources or opportunities available for small businesses to recoup these costs whether it be uh, programs through the Small Business Administration, other grants or um, compliance reimbursement schemes, there needs to be something that ensures that these small businesses can help to offset the cost of compliance to ensure that they're not deterred from continuing to be a member of the defense marketplace. All right, what does success look like for you and the other organizations and ultimately for the businesses that you're representing in this that could also work for the Defense Department to help them achieve the goals that they set out with CMMC originally? I think the first step is increasing that transparency, talking to industry, talking to the broader policy ecosystem about what exactly is going on with the program. Is there going to be an update in the rollout? Um, is CMMC planning to be included on contracts in FY22? Uh, we know that there was a plan to include it in contracts in FY21. We didn't reach that goal, but we really need an update on where we're at, where we're headed, um, and how industry can contribute. We want to be compliant. We want to um, ensure that these rules are an effective increase in cybersecurity, uh, but they have to be implementable and they have to be something that uh, industry can, can stomach both from a financial and from a uh, regulatory compliance perspective. And those are, are really the first steps, I think, to ensuring that uh, we can have a successful program. Corbin Evans, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. You can find a link to that letter at fedscoop.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, Cash is the Defense Innovation Unit's newest weapon in great power competition. The director of DIU, Mike Brown, will tell you more later on the Daily Scoop podcast. And our lineup's available every day ahead of time on Twitter. You can follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod.
Five co-working companies have contracts with the General Services Administration to let federal employees work in their remote offices. GSA has deals for its employees to work at WeWork, Expansive, The Yard, Desk Pass, and Liquid Space locations all over the country. Jeff Neal is host of ChiefHRO.com. He's former Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Jeff, it's good to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your sense of where we are right now with the back to the office effort? You wrote about this on your blog about a month ago, but a lot has certainly changed since the beginning of August. Welcome. Uh, hi, Francis. Uh, you know, I think we probably are not much farther along than we were a month ago. Agencies, I think agencies thought they had a general idea of what they wanted to do. And then Delta kept getting worse and worse and worse. And, um, you know, in Virginia now, the, the infection numbers are actually still going up. So, and, and a lot of states are seeing that. So, so they're really trying to figure out how to get started on the future. And I don't think we're going to know what the future looks like for, I mean, for a long time. I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be a couple years before work settles down to, to something resembling whatever a new normal is going to look like. And I don't think we know what that's going to look like. I think agencies will start out with some hybrid model for the people where a hybrid work model works, but you know, hybrid work, work model doesn't work for everybody. And some people just can't can't do remote work or telework at all. So it's going to take a while before agencies are able to to settle into some sort of routine. And and what what people who work for and with the government should expect is that agencies are going to do some things. They're going to learn that those things aren't working as well as they want, and they're going to make changes. And that's that should that's to be expected. I, I would expect to see that for the next year or two. It sounds like we're going to be in the next mode then for the next year or two that we've been in for the past 18 months, where we're kind of figuring it out as we go along. Am I hearing you right? Absolutely. Um, the plan is to come up with a plan as soon as you have enough information to know what the plan might look like. And, um, and I'm sure a lot of agencies are thinking, well, you know, we know what's gonna, what this is going to look like, and we're just ready to, waiting to implement it. But that's not really what's going to happen. They're going to implement things. They're going to they're going to learn from those things. They're going to wish they had never done some of the stuff they did. And then they're also going to find that, that even when COVID is a thing of the past, which would be really nice to, to see, employees aren't necessarily going to be ready, willing, and anxious to go running back into an office. You know, some people have, people have gone on and, you know, they, they adapted to this version of normal, which of course is not even remotely close to normal. And they don't want to get in a car and get on the road and sit in traffic for an hour every morning and every evening. And they, they don't want to do that. And so I, I, I think even as the, the health conditions allow people to go back to work, and agencies in some case say, we want you to come back into the office. I think a lot of people are going to say, no, we, we really don't want to do that. And if you can't give us, particularly if you're in a, an in-demand occupation, if your employer says, I want you back in an office and you know, somebody down the street is 
where somebody across the country is willing to hire you and let you do whatever you want at home and work from home. Um, you see people whose loyalty is to that, that work from home arrangement more than it is to an agency they work for. What are the implications then for trying to build broader human capital strategies for the next year, two years, or longer? It sounds like that will be difficult, if not impossible, to do, Jeff. Uh, it will be difficult. It, it won't be impossible. I think what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to, to think about several things. One is they're going to have to think about how they hire people and what they promise them when they hire them. So you know, normally you, you identify conditions of employment when you hire somebody. And a lot of people are going to be looking for for high degree of remote work. And so agencies are going to have to think about that as they recruit people. They're also going to have to think about how they bring new people into the agency. You know, when I, when I can bring a new employee in and the new employee is going to be working in a particular cubicle or a particular office and there can be all these people around them, you can take them around, you can introduce them to somebody, you can do all these things to get them used to how work is done in the agency and they can start being brought into a team because they're able to see that team every day. Now they're not going to be able to do that if they have a lot of remote work or a lot of telework. And so what's going to happen is they're going to have to, they're going to have to onboard people in different ways and, and more than just the, the physical onboarding of signing papers and things like that, but the, the actual bringing them into the team, <laughs> they're going to have to think about that differently and do it differently. And then they're going to have to think about how, they facilitate communication between and among employees. Um, and, and that's going to have to be a big part of what they do, which means they're going to have to be working very closely with their technology people to, to, to handle that. And then they have to think about performance and how you, how you manage performance, how you oversee performance, because you know, there are people who are suspicious of remote work or telework and they, they think it's, telegoofing off and they don't want people to do it a lot. And so they're going to have to, to think about how they're going to, to actually monitor and manage performance. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, the solution to that is just put them back in the office and don't spend all that time and money trying to manage performance. Uh, the problem is they don't really do that particularly well in the office either. So it's not like, it's not like they had something that was great and teleworks just messing it up. Um, they had something that most agencies don't do particularly well. They, they don't have the data on, on employee performance that they need. And so they really need to start thinking about that. And, and so that's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of, it, it reminds me of an old Farside cartoon um, where this dog was on a unicycle juggling on a tightrope. And, and the, the, the caption said something like, Rover was really nervous because he was an old dog and this was a very new trick. <laughs> and so, so I think a lot of federal HR people are going to be on that unicycle on the tightrope juggling and we shouldn't be ex too upset if they drop the ball from time to time because it's, it's, it is something new. All right, about 30 seconds left. Um, what do you make of the discussion that's going on now after President Biden's announcement about vaccine mandates, about how agencies will actually implement that in a, in a real way? Well, I, I think that, that 
it needs, I, I agree with the vaccine mandates. Um, you know, we've had vaccine mandates for years. Uh, we've had, I'm sure you had a small, a smallpox vaccine and polio vaccine and measles vaccine. Yes. So there are, there are you know, eight or 10 vaccines that are required of most people right now, but they're not political vaccines. And this is a political vaccine. So this whole thing has been turned into a ridiculous political story. And so I'm, I'm very happy that the president is, is moving along on the course of science and insisting on vaccines. Uh, what I have, have been disappointed with is some of the unions saying that, that um, you know, they want to, to fully bargain everything before it's done. Uh, that means that you know, it could be a year before an agency could implement something. And I think that's a mistake. We have a public health crisis. We've lost 700,000 Americans. I saw something yesterday that said that one in 500 Americans is dead as a result of COVID. Uh, one in 35 Americans, 85 and over, is dead because of COVID. So if someone says, well, I'm more interested in protecting my institutional rights as a union than letting you stop something that's killed one of every 500 Americans, then I think it's time to to rethink your institutional interest. And so, so I think the unions uh, should fully support this uh, and do everything they can to move it along more quickly. Uh, and if, um, if a, an employee has a medical reason why they can't get a vaccine, that should, that should be accommodated. Uh, if they have a religious reason, it should be accommodated as long as it's a legitimate re religious reason. And the one that's been stated by most people is, well, you know, there was fetal tissue used in development and testing of vaccines. Um, you know, apparently fetal tissue was also used in development and testing of Tums and Tylenol. So there's, there, there's one hospital that's now put out a list of all these medications that they're saying to their employees, the, the medical professionals, if you have a religious objection because of use of fetal tissue, you need to attest that you don't use any of these, these things either because they had the same kind of testing. Um, and I, I think that the agencies need to, to get on with implementing this mandate. And, you know, if employees say, well, I just refuse to work for um, an agency that wants me to take a vaccine that might save my life and, frankly, more importantly, might help me not kill a bunch of other people. Um, if they say, well, I just can't do that, then they should quit and find something else to do. That's the longest 30 seconds in the history Sorry. of the Daily Scoop podcast, Jeff. But I love you, and I appreciate you being on the program, as always, my friend. Happy, happy to do it. And you can read more about the back-to-the-office effort at fedscoop.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Monday's program, the Department of Veterans Affairs will give its doctors x-ray vision in the operating room soon. The VA's Thomas Osborne tells you more on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 o'clock Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Innovation Unit's newest tool in great power competition is money. DIU will provide venture funding to companies that are developing products and services the department could benefit from. Mike Brown is the director of the Defense Innovation Unit. He's a 2021 FedScoop 50 nominee in the Golden Gov category. Mike, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the National Security Innovation Capital Program, and how are you getting it off the launch pad? Welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks, Francis. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, we're pretty excited about this. As uh, you say, a new tool uh, for the Defense Innovation Unit and the department to use. And the idea really is how can we 
play a bigger role in catalyzing private investment in early stage hardware ventures. So what we've uh, noticed over the past few years is we've worked with lots of vendors uh, who have great potential to provide uh, their solutions to the Defense Department is that uh, the venture capital industry is doing a great job of funding software, but because uh, the returns are potentially lower on hardware, it's a little bit more difficult investment to make, often more risky capital investment inventories involved, uh, less of our venture capital is flowing to those early stage hardware vendors. So we wanted a tool to be able to encourage not only those companies and entrepreneurs, but private investors to say the water's fine, come on in. Uh, the While the US economy benefits tremendously from the comparative advantage we have in software in this country, the military needs hardware. We need, we need software and hardware. So we need to make sure there's a robust set of vendors uh, in the hardware spaces. We're talking about things like batteries, quantum sensors, things like that. And we thought we might be able to help that along, making sure we've got a robust vendor base uh, for the future. That's even more important when we think about some of the supply chain concerns that have come up more recently, uh, frankly, as a result of the pandemic. So it clearly plays into ensuring we've got a uh, domestic or allied supply base for the things that we need and not so many products being manufactured in China, uh, which present uh, some risk to us. And it's not just the manufacturing in China, it's the fact that China has made its presence known, especially on the West Coast in the technology field, both hardware and software with adversarial capital. Is this an effort to try to deal with that issue, Mike? Well, it's a small relative scale of that problem, but yes. Uh, so for the companies that we select, so to give you an example of the scale, this uh, while it was authorized in 2018, uh, we owe a big debt of gratitude to Representative Mike Gallagher, who got on board this early. Uh, as an idea, as we proposed it, and now it's been uh, certainly uh, helped along by uh, Representative Alyssa Slotkin, who's also taken an interest here. Uh, so while authorized early, it took us until uh, this fiscal year 21 to get appropriations. We received 15 million, which was a start. We asked for 75, but we'll start with what, what Congress uh, uh, sees fit to give us. We fully allocated that now to nine uh, companies. We had over 100 apply. So uh, at the at the scale, it doesn't address uh, that entire problem. For, for those companies who we uh, make a grant to, uh, one of the conditions is that they will not take adversarial capital uh, either in a current fundraising round or for the near future. So it is a way to make sure that we have an allied base that we can rely on that doesn't uh, have some of the uh, risks that are associated with adversarial capital investment. My colleague Jackson Barnett writes uh, about this on fedscoop.com. The idea for the NSIC was first floated by Brown in a paper he wrote on China while serving as a presidential innovation fellow. What other ideas you have up your sleeve that we might see coming out of your brain from uh, past experiences, Mike? Well, uh, we're pretty excited about the portfolio that DIU has today. Uh, if you look at that, it covers quite a range of where uh, ideas and entrepreneurs would come in contact with the Defense Department. So the traditional uh, Defense Innovation Unit, started by Ash Carter, is really about later stage companies that already have a solution in the marketplace. And we've expanded that dramatically in the past couple of years, thanks to support from Congress. So we're now doing a record number of projects, about 35 to 40 underway, received a thousand submissions from companies 
So we're pretty enthused about how that's going. Now, NSIC moves us a little bit further upstream. So now we can start to think about how do we seed future vendors. And then upstream from that, another component is National Security Innovation Network. So this gets us involved in Hacking for Defense and the X-Force Fellowship with students. Uh, so we're connected to universities, 66 universities across the country, incubators, accelerators. So those folks who might not even necessarily have come in contact with national security problems, they get an early exposure. Hopefully some of those people will decide to join us uh, and, and work for one of the national security uh, organizations, Defense Department and the IC, whatever. Uh, and we've developed from those programs some uh, very interesting solutions. In fact, one of the vendors we have at uh, DIU today, Capella Space, a small satellite uh, vendor, actually came from a Hacking for Defense class. So we didn't expect every company we work with to go through that entire pipeline, Ensign to NSIC to Core DIU vendor. But uh, we're starting to see a lot more connectivity of those, uh, uh, the three organizations that we have. In terms of future ideas, one of the things we'd like to do is be more involved with uh, allies and partners. There's no reason in my mind why we shouldn't be sourcing technology from companies that are among our allies that helps us diversify the supply base. And then the solutions that we qualify, I'd love to see those available for the militaries of, uh, of our allies. So that's another area we'd love to be involved in in the future. What confidence would it take for you to know that all of the things that you're working on here, for example, the trusted capital issues and all of those kinds of things are also in place in allies and partners potentially that you'd work with in the future? Well, I think we're early stage uh, in terms of uh, working both on what I'll call defense and offense. Defense, of course, would be a coordinated adversarial capital uh, monitoring system. So if you think about the processes we've developed over quite a few years in terms of the export controls and CFIUS process, I think there's been some work in the past few years recognizing the concerns that China raises uh, in terms of harmonizing some of that. We're early stages, so not, not a well-coordinated, completely harmonized system, but you could see that on the defensive side. And we'd love to see the same thing on the offense side. Love to be working with a defense innovation unit at our allies, working together on some of these trusted capital issues to make investments in uh, in early stage companies so we continue to develop not only the technology but the supply base that we're going to need as as allies going forward mike we're almost out of time i want to ask you you were uh president biden's selection to become the undersecretary of defense for acquisition and sustainment uh that nomination uh, did not go through you withdrew from that process what's your takeaway from that experience mike well, I'm uh, hugely disappointed. Uh, I was very enthused about the opportunity to contribute uh, at that level, uh, but we have a process in place to uh, check out concerns. And uh, unfortunately, in my case, that's gonna take a little bit longer than the nomination allows. So uh, I respect the process uh, uh, underway. Uh, and the takeaway for me is that uh, we can still contribute a tremendous amount uh, in the organization of the Defense Innovation Unit, which we've talked about now has multiple components uh, to it. Uh, we'd like to expand the toolkit and see what we can do at DIU to have a greater impact in terms of bringing more commercial technology into the Department of Defense. Eight of the 10 modernization priorities for DOD are commercial technology. So in fact, we have to figure out a way to now be what I call a fast follower. How do we get access to those, bring those into the department, refresh those solutions at the commercial rate that's a completely different process than what we've had historically at DOD. 
a whole lot of work to do there, and I'm excited to be working on that. Mike Brown of DIU, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Francis. You can read more about the new National Security Innovation Capital Program and more about what's going on at DIU. You can vote for Mike, too, in the FedScoop 50 at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put this show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and many more places. A look at X-Ray Vision at the Department of Veterans Affairs on Monday's program. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.